Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your host, Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics, including health, fitness, and training strategies, to name a few. If you enjoy the show and wish to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon or wish to make a one-time donation, please visit the show PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Also, consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform and on our video version of the show hosted on YouTube. For updates and notifications, please visit my social media channels at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. If you wish to sponsor the show or have any other questions or feedback, please reach out to me at HPOPodcast at gmail.com. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the HPO Podcast for this episode, I am going solo, and the reason for that is because this is going to be just kind of a recap of a current race I just did. So this past weekend on Friday, April 23rd, I took part in the U.S. Track and Field 100-Mile Road Championships, which was hosted in Henderson, Nevada, and this one was really interesting for me to me uh, for a few reasons. One is I was kind of interested in getting out to this event for a year or two uh, earlier. So I kind of had it on my radar. Two, it's usually hosted in February. And the reason for that is it's a short loop course. So it's 1.175 mile loop uh, around this lake with a little bit of rolling hills in there. I think it's somewhere between 40 and 50 feet of elevation gain per lap. So there's 85 of those laps. So it ended up, I think, being around 3,000 feet of climbing and descending over the course of the 100 miles. so it's pretty fast. And when it's held in February, normally desert February temperatures are pretty like room temperature esque. So it's a pretty good spot to run fast times as well as compete for uh, the national championships there at the hundred mile distance on the roads. Uh, this year is a little different. Obviously everything's been skewed a bit with COVID and everything that goes around that pandemic and all the scenarios that are taking place uh, for it. So they weren't able to get it off the ground on its original date in February, but they were able to postpone it until late April in order to do it. So what that meant is weather became a variable. So going into the race itself, the forecast, uh, which bared true was a 94 degree real feel out there, um, direct sun and, uh, wind gusts. So I don't think the wind gusts got quite as bad as they were originally forecasting that came maybe a day later, but we did have a, a good strong wind on the back stretch on some of those laps. So it kind of became a bit more of a logistical situation where, uh, you were there to compete more so than run a fast time due to the heat. And you had to manage things in a way that's maybe a little different so that you didn't succumb to the heat and the variables that would normally not be there. So that was kind of a fun, fun, uh, little bit of, uh, uh, of racing to kind of like wrap my head around and get into it. So I'm going to kind of go through some of that stuff. I'm going to go through kind of the training I did and why some of the nutrition stuff I did, the race itself, the recovery and all sorts of stuff just around that race. But before I get into this stuff, I want to address one other topic and get in because uh, a day after I finished this race, 
Uh, there's a race over in the UK put on by the Centurion Running Race Organization. And these guys do a phenomenal job over there. In fact, uh, one of their RDs has come over to the Desert Solstice Track Fundation in the past uh, just to basically look at the framework of that in an effort to build an event that is designed for folks to chase fast 100 mile times. And the reason why I like to talk about that and I'm excited about that is because it's kind of one of a kind. A lot of the 100 mile stuff I've done in the past, the flat stuff anyway, is a little more contrived in the sense that like I might be jumping into like a 24 hour event and saying, okay, I'm going to target 100 miles as fast as I can within this event. Or you're kind of kind of shoehorning it into something that's there that's not maybe specific for it. And there's just not a lot of opportunities to get a very controlled 100 mile exclusive uh, race setting. And these guys decided they wanted to set that up. So they set it up on a track. They picked a time of year where the weather is good. Start you at 6 a.m. in the morning. So you finish in the light if you're, uh, you know, running really fast clips. Um, and it's just, it's just a perfect setup for it, if, as far as I can tell. In fact, I was actually signed up to go out there and do that event last year in 2020, but it got canceled. Um, but the reason I want to talk about this race for a little bit here is uh, the day after I finished the road championships here in the United States, a guy, Sonia Sorkin, from Lithuania had uh, really done his homework and prepared well and uh, went after the 100 mile and 12 hour world records that I had held and just put together a phenomenal performance. He ended up running 11 hours, 14 minutes and 56 seconds. So he took, you know, roughly five minutes off of, uh, or I'm sorry, a little over four minutes off of my time for 100 miles. He averaged 645 per mile compared to my 647 and a half per mile. And then he uh, he went on to kind of go for 12 hours to see how much distance he could cover there and also broke my mark of 104.8 miles on that by running 105.825 miles. So I was excited to see it because I know uh, Sanyo was preparing for this race last year before it got canceled and it looked like he was really fit. He's been just a really good uh, person to follow if you like flat running ultras, timed event stuff. He's won the 24 hour world championships. He's won the Spartathlon 153 mile race over in Greece. Uh, so uh, it was really cool to see him put in the work uh, and ultimately hit that goal and, and, and raise the bar on what we can see in terms of these controllable fast hundred milers, how far, how fast can a human do them? And I think we'll see a sub 11 hour um, in the next few years at this, at these types of events. And, uh, you know, Sonia is moving us a step closer to that. So I look forward to getting out and doing some fast hundreds in the future and, and seeing if I can maybe inch that a little bit lower. Yes. And I'm sure Sonia will as well as many, as well as other people too. I think one really interesting thing that I saw during the pandemic was you have these situations where, you know, folks who maybe wouldn't otherwise get as interested in these flat controlled environments got a little more interested in them because it's all they had access to. I mean, take Sonia, for example, he was already well in that community, but uh, where he was living, they had lockdowns to the extent where he was doing a ton of training on a treadmill because he couldn't leave the house and train outside. Uh, he also got laid off from his job. So he had a little more time to train, but he also had the anxiety of thinking, okay, uh, you know, when is, you know, my, my normal life going to come back to normal, but he took a, he took advantage of that opportunity and put in some really, really good training from what I could tell and put himself in position to break the world records on both those distance and timed events and got it. So I just want to congratulate Sonia and, and pass that baton off to him, uh, and hope he enjoys, uh, enjoys it and, uh, 
gets good recovery and ready to go for whatever he's got next. I'm guessing he's targeting the world 24 hour championships this fall, which I will be very excited to see how he does there and how this maybe slightly speedier training block feeds into that for him. Um, as someone who's interested in figuring out a 24 hour race at some point in my career. So, uh, congratulations to Sonia. Um, maybe if we can get our time zones lined up and connected at some point, I'd love to have him on the podcast and chat about everything he did and how he got there and we can compare notes and kind of see what, what, what it looks like there. So, uh, that is, uh, that topic. Um, now on to the jackpot running festival, us track and field, hundred mile road championships kind of recap. So my training buildup, a little bit of context here. I was coming off of my buildup and race at the desert Salsa's track meditation, where I was going for 24 hours, had a bunch of issues and they just had a bad day. I mean, long story short, you can go back and listen to my recap on that one. If you're interested uh, to hear more details on it, but it was, uh, I put in a lot of work to train for it. Uh, didn't really get the results or anywhere near the result I was hoping for outside of completing 24 hours in the sense that I stayed in the event for 24 hours, which I think will be valuable in the future when I need to kind of understand and wrap my head around the experience of running you know, fully for 24 hours through the night and sacrificing an entire night's sleep and, and that sort of stuff. Um, so I was coming off a very slow, but very high volume kind of training cycle uh, where I hit some weeks of a 200 plus miles at a relatively slow pace compared to what I would normally do. So what I wanted to do going into the training block for the road championships was first of all, dress things that were least specific uh, to race pace, as well as current weaknesses. So coming off that big, long, slow block going into desert solstice, and then about two weeks of off season, I knew speed was my biggest weakness. So I thought that's got to be something I focus on for a good chunk of this training block and kind of get that speed back. So I, where that lined up with some of the previous hundred milers I've done is I often do do a lot of my shorter speed work, faster speed work, early on in the training plan um, for reasons that I've explained before. And if you're interested in kind of my traditional buildup of what I've done in the last few hundred milers, independent of this one, uh, I, would I would suggest checking out episode 208, where I kind of give a breakdown of how I do that and shed some light on kind of how I prepared for my previous world records uh, at the Pettit Center in 2019. Uh, so I kept the, the speed work there early the same way. What I did a little differently is I, I played around with some different types of workouts and I played around with a little bit more of a blended approach within the speed work category. So when I talk about speed work, I'm usually referring to anything that's kind of moderate to high intensity. So anything roughly above 80% max heart rate or anything above your aerobic threshold, if you want to look at it that way, uh, you know, all the way up to like short interval, like almost all out sprinting is kind of where I'm putting in that speed work category. Oftentimes that fits in the realm of 30 seconds up to four minutes are usually the time frames I'm looking at uh, within those types of workouts for the short interval side of things. And then I'll be doing what I would call long intervals or tempo runs, which are oftentimes like the long intervals are usually between eight to sometimes 20 minutes. If I'm really pulling that lever hard on that, what we call a lactate threshold or kind of tempo run effort. Uh, another way to look at it is an intensity you could sustain for 60 minutes all out if you were to do a time trial. 
those type of speed workouts uh, are, like I said, usually eight minutes to 20 minutes if they're interval sessions. If I'm doing like just tempo steady the whole way, you know, um, I'll maybe reach up to 30 rarely, but sometimes up to 40 minutes at that intensity for any one session. And the difference here is usually I'm breaking those things apart. So I might spend four to six weeks focusing on the short interval side of things before kind of transitioning into four to six weeks, focusing on the long interval tempo run side of things. And then ultimately transitioning into like really pushing a lot of emphasis on race specific intensity and building out those long runs or back-to-back long runs. So what I did a little bit differently with this plan is I kept the speed work in place almost up to the taper. And I also blended it. So instead of doing like, you know, a couple sessions of short intervals for a few weeks and then transitioning to a couple sessions of long interval tempo runs for a few weeks, I blended those together. So an example, this would maybe be Tuesday short intervals, Thursday tempo run, you know, Saturday long run is kind of a way that it kind of played around at it. And then the other thing I did a little bit differently is I had a little bit of different flavor to the workouts. Uh, some of my kind of tried and true versions of those workouts historically would be like, say like a five by three minutes, uh, you know, hard or uh, three by 10 minutes at that lactate threshold tempo run effort uh, or, you know, maybe a 30 minute tempo run. So some of the, some examples of what I did maybe a little differently this time was I did a little bit more variety with uh, some 30 by 30 seconds. So kind of leaning a little bit more into those belot short, very short interval sessions. Um, Said some 10 by one minutes, some six by two minutes, some 20 minute tempo runs, some three by eight minutes. And then ultimately, as I started building out my long run, I kept a little more speed and intensity in those where some of my long runs I would do say like 20 ish miles where kind of once I got a couple of miles warmed up, I would go one on one off for, for a mile. And the one on mile would be like around a 550 ish 555 pace. So just injecting a little bit more speed into that long run. Um, was another thing I did. Yeah. I haven't been as into progression runs in the last few years. I used to do a lot more progression runs kind of as when I got done with college and got into kind of building up my volume and things like that. And then I somewhat stepped away from them a little bit for the last few years. Uh, but, uh, for they, they were, I did one, I think just kind of impulsively one day. And I just, it kind of reminded me how much fun those are, those actually are. And one thing I actually do really like about training is uh, I talked about this actually with Matt Fitzgerald when he came on the podcast is there is like what you think is the best possible workout to do on paper. And you can essentially rinse and repeat that to a degree, but you know, we're also humans and we're trying to enjoy the sport and make it sustainable as well. So you want to have fun when you're doing it too. So sometimes uh, what on paper may look like the best possible workout doesn't always produce the best result because if you don't want to be out there doing it, then you're probably going to sacrifice some performance and that may outweigh, you know, having a workout that you're ready to do, excited to do, and really want to kind of push your, your efforts on. So, uh, for whatever reason, I was enjoying some progression runs. So I added a few of those into the training uh, plan at the back end of some longer runs. And that was just a lot of fun to do. And, and I do think those, especially as you get closer to a race, aren't necessarily as a a negative workout or a compromise when you look at it through the right lens. If you're looking at it as ultra running is essentially an attrition sport where 
you know, the further you go, the harder it gets and the more difficult it becomes to kind of continue the same pace and the same effort, your mental and physical energies are waning and you're just kind of trying to remind yourself to stay on pace. Progression runs kind of puts you in that same state, in my opinion. If you were out there for say a 20 mile long run and at mile 14, when you start getting maybe a little bit more tired, you decide to pick up the pace and progress it to the finish of that run. You're kind of replicating that or simulating that a little bit. So I think it can also be a good kind of psychological tool to use if you want to sprinkle that into some of your uh, your long runs as you get ready for, for a longer race, um, if that fits your training approach. So that's kind of the difference there. The other thing too that I did a little bit differently is since I was coming off such a high volume framework of training, I relaxed a bit on how much long runs I did, even when I got to the peaking phase. So if you look at my training for the Pettit Center in 2019, uh, you know, you'll notice that last like four or five, six weeks, you know, I start really kind of leaning heavily into some of that. I was doing kind of a, a few rounds of back-to-back -back long runs where I'd be like 30-ish miles on Saturday, 30-ish miles on Sunday. And at that point in my training, I really needed those runs. Um, at this, for this one, I felt like I maybe just needed to sprinkle some of those in and, uh, kind of keep my mind fresh from feeling too much in the category of, I did a ton of work, but now I'm kind of tired of it. So I'm not motivated to be out there on race day and do it again. Uh, so since I had kind of taxed myself with that at the end of last year, I decided to kind of relax that a little bit, but not entirely remove it. It's still a very necessary, very specific workout for the racing I'm doing. So to show up with none of it is, is probably not a very good idea either. So it's just a little more choosy on how many like 30 plus milers I did. I did a lot more kind of like 20 milers sprinkled in throughout the week where I targeted kind of goal race intensity. And I think that kind of just cumulatively probably helped out with like skeletal muscle fatigue and just being, being feeling like I mentally had the, the longevity to stick it out for a full hundred miles. So that's kind of how I went about, about the, the training side of things. Hey folks, I want to make a quick shout out to some of my personal athlete sponsors and offer all of you some discount options if you think my gear is also right for you. My shoe of choice, Ultra Footwear, is offering listeners 15% off. They make a foot-shaped, balanced, cushioned shoe that fits like a glove. S-Fuels is offering 5% off and they are my go-to low-carb workout and lifestyle product of choice. Eggweights is offering 15% off their running form, strength work, and recovery products. Finally, Purpose Performance Wear is offering 10% off my favorite workout apparel, including my own signature series. So head over to zackbitter.com forward slash my gear or the profile link on my social media channels to check out these discounts and more. All right, folks, now back to the show. Nutrition, I mean, some folks I know are always interested in kind of what I'm doing with that since I do follow uh, a slightly less typical approach to endurance, uh, being what I would consider a low carbohydrate endurance athlete. So I didn't really deviate far from my uh, typical approach where off season I'm going quite low carbohydrate, you know, sometimes even strict ketogenic low. And then as I start entering structure training, I start like uh, titrating in a little more carbohydrate, especially around intense workouts, longer, harder sessions and things like that. And, you know, that can range from anything from like 5% or less carbohydrate intake all the way up to make a few handful of days during the training plan. I might branch up to 20, 30% carbohydrate. 
and, you know, more often than not, I'm probably in that 10 to maybe 20% range uh, on average, if you just look at it from that, from, from a kind of a more of a, a broad spectrum. So some of the stuff I was focusing on, some of the staple foods I was including during that program was from the, from my whole food, like meal side of things. I was doing quite a few, quite a bit of eggs, quite a bit of salmon, uh, beef, dairy. I actually got into fermenting dairy uh, during this training block. Uh, I've been fermenting vegetables for years now, and I just hadn't pulled the trigger on fermenting my own dairy yet uh, outside of just buying it already fermented. Um, and I thought it'd be fun to kind of try that myself and make it myself. And it is, it turns out fermenting milk is actually one of the easiest things to ferment. You can do it in like less than a day. Uh, it, essentially you, you barely have to do anything to do it. So I got into that and that was quite a bit of fun. So I was doing a little more fermented dairy in my like yogurt style or like kefir, if you want to call it, that it was like the stuff I was fermenting was still liquidy enough. That is probably more along that line. Um, some other stuff was like nut butters with like oil in it. I'll sometimes get like a, say like an almond butter or something like that, or a mixed nut butter. And then I'll add a bunch of oil to it to just kind of raise the fat content a bit in that. And I, I just, I'll turn to that a lot of times during big training blocks and things where I'm just putting out a ton of energy. I need something that's really high energy, low volume. So I don't feel like I'm stuffed all the time, but I'm staying on top of calories. Um, some of the other stuff, some of the non-starchy vegetables I included were like broccoli, cauliflower, romaine, lettuce. Uh, I was uh, also fermenting beets quite a bit during this training block. So I was having quite a bit of that fermented beets. Uh, one thing I did a little differently this block was I was, as I was preparing myself for the race day itself, I wanted to really make sure that I had kind of a dual fueling strategy going of kind of liquid, more engineered fuels in combination with some more solid food stuff. So I think that is kind of the recipe for success in terms of kind of mitigating any sort of digestive issues. If you can kind of have a balance between solid foods and some more engineered fuels. And even though carbohydrate or your glycogen is the fuel tank you're gonna potentially deplete, uh, I do think there's some value in adding small amounts of fat and protein to that fueling plan as well, just to kind of help with the digestion process there. Uh, so for me, the way I was looking at my race day fueling strategy was my kind of core foundation is S fuels race plus, which is a powder I'll mix in with my, uh, um, with my drinks. And I really like that stuff because they balance out the electrolytes in it as well. They have small amount of fat and protein, and then about 15 grams of carbohydrate in a pack of that. So it's kind of like checks all those boxes I mentioned before. So it was kind of my faster acting, like liquid, um, more engineered fuel source. And then I was, I was, uh, alternating that I was, or my plan was to alternate that with sourdough bread with some peanut butter on it and, uh, just some like salty crackers. So something that was maybe a little more crunchy, a little more salty to kind of contrast the taste of the race. Plus that's the other thing I like to do. I like to find two things that are kind of, kind of contrast and flavors uh, that way, like you don't run the risk of kind of like fatiguing your palate from just kind of hitting the same flavor over and over again throughout the course of the day. So in order to be as prepared for that setup as possible, I tried to skew a little more of my carbohydrate consumption, my day-to-day -day diet towards those products so that my body was really used to those specific products on race day. So I use the race plus in like my big workouts and training stuff as I have historically over the last year. But I also started kind of weaving it in to some of the other pasta. So like maybe after a run, what I would have normally had like a baked potato or something like that, I'd make like a high fat smoothie and just put a packet of the race plus in there. So that was kind of introducing that into my diet a little more frequently. 
And then similar to that example of the baked potato, maybe instead of a baked potato for dinner, you know, I might have a, a slice or two of sourdough bread or a handful of those crackers. So I just kind of trickled those things in there for about four or six weeks leading into the race itself. And uh, really, if uh, you know, it's one example. So there's a lot that could be going on. There's uncontrollables or variables that uh, that are also impacting this that you have to consider. But digestively, I don't know that I ever felt better in a race. Uh, I, I didn't stop once to use the bathroom <laughs> the whole time. So you know, in a race where heat is a factor, a lot of times digestion issues get amplified. So I was really excited that that played out the way it did. Um, one thing to also consider there, I was very on point on hydration and electrolytes. I was doing a lot of electrolytes and water during the course of that day. So that I also think if you're on top of that stuff, I think that keeps digestion running a little more smooth. Uh, usually what I find is if I kind of mess up hydration, that's where I'm kind of set up for failure on, on digestive issues. Um, so perhaps that's a blood volume thing or something, but, uh, for every reason I was on point on that on race day too. So that may have fed in just as much as the, the kind of priming the digestive system, so to speak. The, um, the other thing I wanted to mention about that is, oh, we'll get into this in a bit here. We'll just, that, I'll talk about that when I talk about the, the race ex itself. So that's kind of my nutrition leading in. Um, I, I would say if anything, I probably, was a little lower carb than I normally would be in a buildup for a hundred mile race. I bet I was, uh, um, you know, maybe it wouldn't be super significant, but maybe like 5% lower on average, uh, throughout the course of the whole training block. And some of that may have just been, I, I didn't do as much volume. Uh, I had a little more rest days and things like that. So I may just not have had as much of a need, uh, for it during some of those like bigger, typically 150 plus mile weeks that it maybe would have done in the past. Uh, so that is one other thing I can add to the, the kind of training buildup side of things too, was I think my, my peak week was 145 miles. I had a few others that were kind of up near there in the 130 range. Uh, but I didn't quite pull that lever as hard from the overall volume standpoint, as well as kind of the long run standpoint as I maybe have in the past too. All right. So race week, I do want to talk about kind of just kind of what my plan was going in as well as my nutrition going into the race week. So we'll keep going with nutrition since we were just talking about that and go into the pre-race planning. Uh, but nutrition was pretty typical of what I normally do. Usually the week out from a race, I'll be full on taper at that point. So I'll drop my carbs quite low, similar to off season, close to ketogenic low. Um, and I'll run with that for maybe about four days, five days at the most usually before the race. Um, or four or five days of a week before the race. And then those last couple of days before I'll start bringing back the carbohydrates in the fashion that I would for say like a big training run or something like that. So uh, that's kind of how I structured that week with this. I did kind of the same thing, went quite low for about five days. And then two days, I started reintroducing some carbohydrate sources. Um, again, I focused on some of the stuff that I was going to use on race day, like that S fuels race plus the sourdough bread and those salty crackers as my carbohydrate sources for the most part during that in order to just kind of, you know, remind my digestive system that you got to be ready to use these things on race day. Um, Pre-race planning, logistics, and that sort of stuff. So as I mentioned, kind of the beginning, uh, big variable was the heat here. So I knew that it was going to be like resource crew heavy if I wanted to really be able to maximize my day there and 
you know, outrun some of the other guys there. So this was probably the most competitive road hundred mile championships that we've seen, at least in quite some time. Uh, Pat Regan was there and, you know, Pat is uh, well known in the alternate community for being able to, to run really flat, fast hundred milers effectively. He's a three-time winner at the Hobbling hundred. He's got not only the course record, but the second fastest time there as well. He's won Brazos Bend, um, uh, Yeti hundred miler. These are very runnable courses. He's been third at world hundred Ks on two occasions. Uh, he's been 12th at comrades, which is just a ridiculously competitive 56 mile race in South Africa. It's probably the most competitive ultra marathon in the world, barring maybe ultra trail Mount Blanc. So, uh, you know, I had my hands full with Pat. I knew that Pat's beat me in the past. Uh, so I, I knew I'd have to have a very good day and execute my plan if I wanted to, to be able to finish ahead of him. And then, you know, another guy, Raj Paul, who's new to the sport, but I think this guy's got a ton of promise. He finished second at the Hoka Carbon X2 project where, um, you know, he ran a 628 kilometer debut, which was just about a minute off of Max King's previous 100 kilometer American record for his first ultra marathon. And I mean, the only reason he wasn't the story of the day there is because Jim Walmsley ran a 609 and just barely missed the world record by about 11 seconds. So, uh, so I knew Raj had the capability of putting together a super fast time if things went well for him. So, for me, I knew I had to be on point. I couldn't make mistakes that would be uh, uncorrectable. And uh, one of those meant making sure I stayed cool. If it was going to hit 94 degrees real feel, I knew I needed to be very wet and get ice water on me as often as I could. So with 85 laps at 1.175 miles each, I did have the ability to essentially get soaked every time. So after about the first maybe 20 laps or so, as we got into, uh, you know, the late morning hours and the heat started picking up, I just started having my crew essentially every time I come through, hand me these, like they had these towels that were just drenched with ice water. So they'd hand me a couple of those and I'd like rinse myself off with that as I was running through the aid station. And ultimately for probably about 40 or 50 laps in the middle of that race, I would actually stop for a few seconds and have them just dump a cup of ice water on my head. So I was leaving every lap just drenched wet. Like I almost came out of, like I had just jumped in the lake that we were running around essentially. And that worked so well. It was, it worked so well that I would, I would get cool immediately when they would dump that on me. I'd go around the loop and I'd hit that back stretch where the wind was. And I'd still be wet enough when I hit that, when that wind hit me, it was like another cooling effect. So before I hardly even had a chance to dry off, I was already kind of rolling in at the end of that next lap. And I was able to kind of get wet again. And I think I probably kept my core temperature significantly lower by doing that, um, you know, you're essentially in a situation where you're trying to create like a microclimate around you to kind of remove yourself from the real fatigue in the sun. And one of the reasons why I knew to do that early and often, even when it felt like maybe it was still a little early to start, was uh, one thing I learned in 2016 when I was racing the Havelina 100 is with the dry heat, especially when it gets up into the 90s and close to the hundreds or into the hundreds, you, you don't really notice that you're overheating when you're starting to overheat. You feel relatively comfortable still. And then you just get kind of like enveloped with this like blanket of fatigue and you're just like woozy, dizzy. And you're just like, what's going on here? So at Havelina in 2016, when I was coming up on that five loop course, it's hundred miles, five loop course. I was coming up on the third loop midway. So I was about halfway done. I walked in that aid station thinking, I don't know if I can finish this thing. And uh, I immediately just got doused with ice water and it was like a light switch went off. 
So I learned right then and there on that day that topical cooling is the name of the game in dry heat and you need to preempt it. So I, I, I was doing a really good job of that early and often. I think that's part of the reason why I also was probably able to have good digestion all day and not have any issues with that. Um, the other thing that worked in my favor during the day too was you know, these things always have variables that you don't know about until you get into them, especially when there's competition there. And that's what makes these things exciting is, you know, both Raj Paul and Pat Regan had a couple of spots where they hit a rough patch fairly early in the race. It was between 30 and 50 miles. So it was in the first half. So they had a couple of hiccups there that caused them to have to stop for a bit of time and then slow down quite a bit. And I was feeling really good during that section. So I kind of leveraged a little bit when I saw them having some issues I kind of punched the gas maybe a little bit more than I would have typically felt comfortable with. But my thought was if I could amass a big enough lead by the halfway point to the degree where I could essentially just maintain, that was going to be the, the best strategy, um, you know, essentially like make it less likely for them to think, okay, I still have a shot at catching, catching Zach. So I took advantage of that opportunity and I ended up, I think, getting by pretty close to the midway point, close to an hour lead. And at that point, you know, as the heat really started to hit kind of peak temperatures, I was in a position where I kind of just had to maintain, I didn't necessarily have to get too aggressive. So I pulled back a little bit on kind of the risk taking and uh, tried to maintain a pace that I knew wasn't going to create an issue to me that would cost me um, all that time I made, because just as easily as you can gain an hour in ultra marathon, you know, had I had like a weird digestive issue or got a little overheated, say at 60, 65 miles and sat down for an hour, those guys closed that gap immediately. And all of a sudden they're back in it and you know, then they're hungry to go for the win. So I knew at that point, I was like, okay, I just got to kind of maintain this hour lead and, uh, you know, just kind of try to keep that consistent lead there and not necessarily take the risks I would have, if I had either Pat or Raj Paul or, or anyone for that matter, Jake Jackson had a really great race. He ended up finishing second, just ran a super solid race. I think he had one little hiccup early in the middle, but or early in the race. But other than that, he was just, every time I saw him, you could just tell he was doing what he needed to do, staying hydrated, staying wet, staying consistent, running his race, not someone else's. Um, so he was running pretty close to the same splits as I was near the end there. But I, you know, I had been able to build a big enough lead that it, it was enough to, to, to seal it up uh, at the end of the day. So I ended up running 12 hours, 52 minutes, which was about, I want to say, I think it was 12 or 13 minutes under the previous course record. Um, I think this course is probably a sub 12 hour course on a normal year when you're running it in February. If we got like room temperature and a little bit of overcast, a light breeze, I think you could rip around that thing in under 12 hours. Uh, the thing that would make it a little more difficult is there are those rollers. So you are going to have 3000 feet of elevation gain and loss, which you're not going to have on a track, a track, you're going to have zero of that essentially. Um, there is some tight turns on there. There's this one spot on the course where you almost do a 270 degree turn. You're coming off this bridge and taking like a right-hand turn. Uh, so there's that variable too, um, that kind of adds a little bit. So you're going to have some tangents on a course like that. And whenever you have tangents, you're going to run a little further than the actual distance. The other thing is, I mean, there's other runners out there. That's also a public park. So there's people out there and, you know, people don't always get out of your way so <laughs> when you're, when you're running these races uh, and, and that's just part of it. So like the end of the day, I think I ended up running um, 1.4 miles further. So it's like 101.4 miles. And that's just due to the tangents, which isn't 
unexpected. I think they're the general estimate is that you're with a course with tangents like that, you're probably going to add about a percent. So 101 miles wouldn't be outside the realm of possibility by any stretch. And the fact that there was a lot of people out there just adds a little more um, poor tangent running out of necessity versus out of what you would ideally do if it was just like you and maybe a couple of the people out on the course. So that would maybe make it a little more difficult to shave under 12 hours, but I think it's, I still think it would be doable there on, on perfect conditions. And it's a race I'd like to maybe go back to and, and take a shot at that when it's in February. A um, couple things just in terms of nutrition during the race is I tried to tally things as well as I could to, in order to report back and just kind of have that inventory for my own sake and knowledge going into other races in the future. But ultimately I came out to like 10 packs of the S fuels race plus I had six servings of those uh, salty crackers. Uh, I had one sourdough bread sandwich with peanut butter on it. I had about 20 ounces of Mountain Dew that I brought in at the very end. I think in the last like 10 miles or so is just a little bit of caffeine boost in there uh, as I started to get tired and the sun started to set. Uh, I did about six packets of that element. That's an electrolyte that has a thousand milligrams of electrolytes in each packet. Um, and I had more water than I could possibly account for. It was basically something almost every lap. There's, I bet there was maybe, there's less than 10 laps for sure, probably closer to five laps where I went out there with not without a bottle in my hand. So I was either drinking plain water, water with electrolytes or race plus, um, basically on almost every lap around there. So um, for that, I thank my wife, Nicole, <laughs> and, and, and the crew. There were some volunteers, uh, including Pam Smith, who is just a legend in the sport of ultra running, was out there uh, crewing someone else. And she hopped in and helped me when, when she could. Uh, you know, Pam's won Western States. She's, uh, you know, done quite well at flat 100Ks, flat 100 milers, 24-hour timed events, hilly mountainous trails. She's won Angeles Crest 100, as I said, Western States. So she's just done everything. Uh, so getting, getting her help and having her eyes kind of on me was useful because I figured if I was going to make a mistake, she was probably going to see it and, you know, tip off Nicole, but, but it's, it's just, uh, worth mentioning that when you have a course like this, it is so much more fatiguing for your crew and the people helping you because they get no breaks. Um, like when I crew Nicole at Western States, there's only a handful of spots where I get to see her up until I start pacing. So that can be anxiety provoking a bit where you're like, okay, where is she? How's she doing? And you're just waiting for maybe an hour, maybe two hours to see again and find out if, um, if your runner is doing well, get a glimpse of how they look and feel where with these short loop courses, Nicole can see me all day long. She's basically has to be on point all day long, uh, and has to deal with me changing the plan, asking for something different. Uh, one thing we talked about that's actually really funny. And I can completely relate to is there's just kind of this weird thing where you'll have, you'll be so focused on your runner and they'll come through and they'll say like, can I get a bottle of water next lap? And you'll say, okay, I got that. But you got so many other things running through your mind. As soon as they leave, you catch yourself wondering like, did they say water? Did they say race plus? What did and you kind of forget? And then it's like, it's too late to find out until they come back around. So it's a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress and just a hard job to do. Uh, so I, I want to make sure to acknowledge Nicole and, and the other volunteers and folks out there who were like, you know, a huge part of even being able to do this in a in the heat like that. So without them, there's no finish. There's no national national uh, championship. There's no win. There's no 1252 and that sort of stuff. So, uh, you know, they're very much part of that process. And I can't be thankful enough for their help throughout the course of the day 
dealing with with me coming through asking to get soaked on basically two out of every three laps on that course um post race a few things before we wrap this up is nutrition uh i'm usually going quite low carb after a race i'm not doing any running at least for probably a few days if not a full week uh so energy output is as low as it gets uh when i go low carb i also tend to kind of be fairly heavy on protein. It's not uncommon that I'm going to get up to 20, maybe 30% of my intake from protein at that point. I think that's a huge macronutrient to focus on after something like this. You're just doing a ton of damage to your muscles. Recovery is by far the name or the primary uh, focus point. And uh, I just feel like I feel better when I'm doing that. And some of it could also just be, it's so, it's so different from what you race with in terms of what you're eating on the race day itself. So for me, for someone who's not typically eating a lot of the race type foods and fuels on a day-to-day basis, when I do that on race day, when I finish, I'm just like, Oh, I don't want to even think of that stuff for a while now. So for me, it's a kind of a relief to turn to something that's like just a little bit different consistency, a little different flavor profile and things like that. So, um, as I record this, I've been quite low carbohydrate, certainly in a strict ketogenic kind of framework, uh, for the better part of, uh, the last week. And, um, you know, that's included a lot of those staples that I had in the, in the buildup where I'm just skewing away from any of the carbohydrate sources for the most part that I listed earlier in there, but those other things are more or less in place, uh, that were either carb free or very, very low carbohydrate. Um, my recovery protocol in general is what I usually look at after something like this is I give myself two weeks if I want it to basically just say, nothing is mandatory. Nothing is structured. It's, uh, you know, take as much of that time as you want and focus heavily on getting your mind and your body refreshed and recovered and use that time to really think about what you want to do next. Because one thing I learned, I think in 2018, sort of, and then confirmed entirely in 2019 was if I'm doing say the same type of training and the same type of racing for too long. So like, you know, over a year, close to two years, I start to kind of like get a little less interested and motivated to do the workouts that are very specific to that type of race. And I get a lot more enjoyment and kind of a reset on those if I step away and do something entirely different for a while. So I use that time to kind of think about, well, what is it I'm really motivated to train for? Um, it's one thing to pick a race you want to do, but if you pick a race you want to do, say four week, or I'm sorry, four months out, but you didn't really account for whether you're going to enjoy what it takes to prepare for that race, you can make that experience miserable, and then you're just not going to show up on race day ready to go. So um, I'm currently using this time to kind of do those things. Think about what is it I want to do next. Um, I do have some things on the calendar that are like that I'm already signed up for big one being the transcontinental run, which will be completely different than anything I've done before. So I'm not afraid about that being monotonous and that being, you know, kind of a repeat of what I've done in the past. Uh, so really what I'm kind of weighing in right now is just what do I want to do in those weeks and months leading into that to make sure I'm ready for that. And, and right now I'm actually kind of leaning towards uh, getting into that process a little earlier and maybe using some shorter ultra races like 50 K to hundred K uh, on the trails to, uh, you know, just kind of like get myself used to being out there for long hours and things like that, a little less focused on performance, more on just prepare preparation for that transcontinental run and make sure I'm, you know, 
taking care of myself in a way that's going to be put me in a position to be able to make it across the country. Because I do think the big variable with that particular project is not getting injured. It's less about can I run or walk fast enough to get there in an X amount of time? It's more about, can I take care of myself enough so I don't get injured and get removed from the project altogether? Uh, so I'm going to be focusing, I think, a lot on like, what can I do to kind of put myself in that position? One other interesting post-race note. And the reason I think it's interesting is because the exact same thing happened to me at Javelina in 2016. So a little bit of background, Javelina 2016, it hit 102 degrees. So it was like course record temperatures. Um, you know, you take a toll from that for sure. And one thing that happened to me there, that was a Saturday race. And Sunday night after dinner, I got really sick, just super sick. I was throwing up, just slept all day the next day. Um, just like complete, almost like 24 hour flu symptoms. And I couldn't really pinpoint exactly maybe what caused that. I mean, it could be anything you, I ran a hundred miles in the heat. My immune system was probably absolutely trashed. So it's very possible that, you know, traveling, I picked up a bug or something like that and then just got sick. Um, the reason I find it interesting is the exact same thing happened to me for this one. Uh, since this race was on Friday, it came a day earlier. So, uh, Saturday night, I started feeling kind of a little off that night. Um, and then by the time I went to bed Saturday night, I was just like, wow, you know, I'm, I'm really, really, uh, tanked here. Um, and at that point I just thought, you know, it's just the aftermath of the race itself, you know, catching back up on hydration, catching back up on fueling and things like that, catching up on sleep. But then I woke up Sunday morning. I was, my intention was to drive back, uh, to Phoenix. It's about a four and a half hour drive. The race was from, from where I live. And I thought I, I woke up and I was just like, I can't even imagine getting in a car right now. So <laughs> I ended up like extending my stay for a day and I just slept all day Sunday. Just I'd wake up every few hours and feel nauseous and just kind of get, try to get some water in and then go back to sleep. So I basically slept all day Sunday, all night through the night Sunday, probably slept between 16 and 18 hours between Sunday morning and Monday morning. And I basically slept it off. So uh, when I woke up Monday morning, I was feeling a lot better. I was feeling a little dehydrated um, a little depleted, but you know, once I was able to start getting some water and some food in me, I, that kind of turned around pretty quick, but I thought it was kind of interesting that I had basically the, a mirrored experience with that post race. So love to hear from other listeners that are ultra runners, if they've had that, um, my questions are how much of it is due to the heat, since those were two variables that were consistent with, uh, Javelina and this race at the championships here this year, um, likely also tethered into just like, you know, lowered immune system traveling on the road. Uh, I mean, I am dousing water and all kinds of, you know, topical cooling things on me during the races itself. So who knows what I'm exposing myself to throughout the process of just that itself. Um, that could also be causing it too, but it's just an interesting, uh, um, report back that I've noticed now on two occasions, uh, that I thought it'd be fun, fun to share, but that's all I got. Um, Folks, if you're interested, uh, head over to my website at zackbitter.com. I actually have some pre-made coaching plans up there now. So if you click on my training tab on that website, uh, you can get everything from right now a marathon up to 100 miles. I have both 16-week and 24-week plans on there. I have three different levels from level one, level two, and level three that go from four-day-a-week programs, five-day-a-week programs, six-day-a-week programs from running frequency 
And I also have a base building program on there where it's 12 weeks that focuses just on building like the aerobic foundation to be ready to kind of train for whatever endurance race you want to do. I'm looking to add some half marathon, 10 K 5 K plans to that as well in the next coming month or so. Um, but if you're interested in that sort of stuff, feel free to check it out. Um, otherwise, uh, thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to this episode of the human performance outliers podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider checking out my website at zackbitter.com or my social media channels at zackbitter on Instagram, at zbitter on Twitter, and at zack.bitter on Facebook. You can also support the show by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send me an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.